today, this morning, I covered the theological and biblical underpinnings for Holy Communion as practiced in not just the United Methodist Church, but in a large number of denominations. And we took a look this morning at the, the actual liturgy, and it's in your hymnal, and I invite you to turn to page 9 again like we did this morning. Now, as I said this morning, it's a long prayer. And some people look at it and say, Ooh, it's a long prayer. Why do we pray it? What does it mean? And I always think that the best way to examine something like this is to look at its history and its component parts. Well, I really didn't touch on its history this morning, and so tonight I'm going to do that. But let's begin with a little bit of review about its component parts. The first part of the prayer of great thanksgiving, and that's what this is called, first part is called what? Does anybody remember? Okay. It's called the Thanksgiving. It's also called the Eucharist. Now the whole thing is that, is a Thanksgiving, the great Thanksgiving, and the whole thing is the Eucharist. But it begins from the opening sentences of the prayer, where we have the responsive words back and forth, to the portion where it says, It is right and a good and a joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. That section there is the actual thanksgiving. And in the thanksgiving, we give thanks to God, Thanks to the Father on high. And if we take a closer look at the prayer, notice what it says. You formed us in your image. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity, made covenant to be our sovereign God, and spoke to us through your prophets. What are we recounting there? What historical, theological event are we referring to here in the beginning of this prayer? Exodus, the delivery out of bondage in the land of Egypt. Notice it says, You delivered us from captivity, made covenant to be our sovereign God, and spoke to us through your prophets. It's a proclamation that in history, you delivered us from the captivity in Egypt, you made covenant to be our God, and you continued to communicate with us. We turned away. Our love failed. Your love never fails. Your love remains steadfast. Well, the, peop the story of the Israelites in the Exodus, the story of the Israelites in the Exodus is theologically our story too. Each and every one of us has turned away and our love has failed 
Each and every one of us has been taken into captivity, a captivity of sin, a captivity of the far country that the prodigal son wanders off into where he wastes his money on liquor and wild women and ends up feeding pigs rather than doing what he should do. And finally understands and recognizes the sin he has fallen into and gets up and goes home. Each and every one of us has been taken into captivity. Captivity to sin. And God, through Jesus, delivers us from that captivity. But, and that is true. And the Exodus story can be seen as every person's story. The Jews always saw it as the story of their people and their personal story. We too see it as the story of the people of God delivery from Egypt, and our personal story, delivery from the Egypt of sin. Okay? So, the first portion here has both an historical and a theological content. Historically, it's speaking about the delivery of the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. Theologically, it's speaking about all of us, that we are all taken into captivity, and the Father has delivered us. So, this is sort of a, a basic introduction to what God has done for us, both in history and in, in our understanding of our delivery from sin. The next step is this pray, prayer, this praise, this hymn, the holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now where does this come from? It's biblical. Where does it come from? That sounds like John in Revelation. Yes. This is the hymn that the angels sing and the people of God, the elders sing, gathered around the throne. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth is full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. It is the song that is sung in, the, in heaven by the people of God, led by the choirs of angels. Alright? So here we are, in worship in the sanctuary. We're remembering, we're, well, we're getting ready to remember, we are giving thanks and praise to God for what He has done for us. And then we join with the saints in all eternity in singing this hymn that we will sing for all eternity. But only He is holy. Holy, holy, holy. Said three times makes it perfect. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. That is an, a song of praise. Very much so. And it's biblical. The next section starts right after, this is called, that, that song is called the Sanctus Deo, Holy God. Holy, 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 Lord God, our power and might. That's the Sanctus Deo, the Holy Lord, or Holy God, or Holy Father. The next section from where it starts with, Holy are you and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. From that part, all the way down until the next responsive reading, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This section is a two-part section. 
And it's called what? The remembrance. The remembrance, literally, the recollection. Now think about that word, recollection. Recollection. The recollection. The remembrance. The Greek word is... Anamnesis. Anamnesis. And it's spelt in English. Alright. And it means literally the recollection. It's the anamnesis. The recollection. What are we remembering? what Christ did, specifically. The first portion of the prayer is a remembrance of what Jesus did for us in what is called salvation history. What Jesus did for us. And if you take a look at the prayer, you see the gospel story outlined. Your spirit anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce that the time had come when you would save your people. Think about the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. This reflects that which he was calling the people to, and he said, there will come a one who will do this. That, Oh, uh -huh, most certainly did. Then look what else it says. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, and ate with sinners. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. See, there's a reference immediately to the, our baptism in his suffering, death, and resurrection. So there's a reference right there to not just his suffering, death, and resurrection, but to our inclusion in it. All right? Because remember, baptism means immersion into. But by the immersion of his suffering, death, and resurrection, our immersion into it. You gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death. There's a reference to the Exodus from the Thanksgiving portion. Delivered us from slavery to sin and death and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. Made covenant to be our sovereign God. Here in Christ Jesus, he makes a new covenant with us. So in the anamnesis, in the remembrance, we see a collection of what Jesus did for us. When the Lord Jesus, Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of your word and Holy Spirit. Remember, this is a prayer to God the Father. We're, we're praying to God the Father. But it's initially a proclamation of thanksgiving and then our remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. It's not as if God the Father doesn't know this. Alright? He does. This is for our remembrance. That's the first half of the anamnesis. It goes to that point there. From there on, we have what is generally known as the words of institution the 
words of institution. And if you look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, you will find some version of these words. There's variation in how they are presented, but for the most part, this is what you will find. And our prayer, the, the great thanksgiving in most denominations, follows closely Paul's iteration of it. Okay? So if you, you know, after tonight, if you want to take a look at it on your own, you can do that. That's in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Look what it says. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then it closes the anamnesis with, And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of the faith. So the anamnesis, the recollection, the remembering, involves a general statement as to what Jesus did for us in his life, his ministry, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. The second half recounts the institution of the Lord's Supper itself and uses the words that Paul uses that we also find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to some degree, in which the bread and the cup are both referenced. And their meaning is both referenced. Where he says, This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why do they call it a mystery of faith? The mystery, the mysterion, the mystery of faith. Um, and you're talking about down here where it, where it says, as we proclaim the mystery of faith, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. I don't find any mystery in that at all. The fact that Jesus, in that blood, that his body, you know, the body of Christ broken, you're taking his body, you're taking his blood, and he's going to change you. And as he changes you, how he is present, how he is communicated to you, how you receive it, how the death, resurrection, and return of Christ is manifested in each and every life, the entirety of the gospel internalized and lived is the mystery. Now we think, oh, we understand it. We understand his death. We understand his resurrection. We understand his return. Do we? And as Methodists, we also believe that the saints that have gone on have gathered with us. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, most denominations believe that, actually. That when we gather at the altar, we have also the understanding. I mean, we think that we just had the people who were in the sanctuary today. But, and I we can kind of illustrate this with my internet ministry that in point of fact there were 30,000 people around this planet 
sometime during this week who will tune in to the message. Tune in to the service on the internet. But that's not even a drop in the bucket compared to the totality of the communion of the saints present somewhere on this planet, past in glory, and in the future, those who have yet to come, who are gathered together at the table. The table is not confined to this sanctuary. The table is present in every sanctuary where communion was being celebrated, present, past, and future. And the totality of the communion of the saints includes us and the choir of angels leading us in singing praises to God. When I drink that wine, I, I just imagine as it goes down, mm-hmm. I can feel it going down and it's cleansing and changing. As an act of faith, receiving was, it, yes. As I was in the Presbyterian Church for eight years, we spent three days preparing for communion. You had to prepare yourself. The last 24 hours we were mostly spending prayer on Saturday. Wow. And we had it once a month, but it was a very special time. And in the old Presbyterian Church, like in Scotland and over in there, I mean, they um, spent a whole week preparing. Right. And only the people that the elders approved could sit at the communion table. You might have 1,200 people there and 20 at the table. And that is a tradition that, while it had meaning to them, to us, and to me personally, I believe is wrong. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the preparation. The preparation is important. Because you, 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 that's your time to go and make amends with that people. That's your time to be forgiven of mm-hmm. any sins. You really search. Mm-hmm. And all of that is included in the idea of the mystery of the faith. The mystery of the faith is its totality. What it means for us in its completion. What this whole act is. What does it mean when Jesus says, this is my body? What does it mean when Jesus says, this is my blood? Huge fights throughout the history of the church have risen over that whole issue. We talked this morning about the concept of transubstantiation in the Roman Catholic Church and their belief that although the the outside, the smell and the taste what are called the accidents in Latin theology, of the bread and the wine don't change. Their substance is transformed. It becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. And that is how they talk about real presence. Now, we don't accept that. No, I just think symbolically that's what... Well, symbolically is one way to understand it. Transignification, these signify... They signify the elements... The general Anglican, Anglo-Methodist, Anglo-Catholic conception of the Church of England, the United Methodist Church in particular, understand these as being a means by which one receives. They are conduits. If you look at... It's okay to talk about this here. We're not yet done with the prayer, but that's all right. If you turn in your hymnal, put your th- keep your thumb on the Great Thanksgiving and go... Oh, the Depth of Love to Find, number 627. This is a Charles Wesley hymn. Charles Wesley was John Wesley's brother. And Charles Wesley wrote this hymn talking about the meaning of Holy Communion. Oh, the depth of love divine, the unfathomable grace. Unfathomable. We think we can fathom the grace of God, but it's truly unfathomable. 
the unfathomable grace, who shall say, how bread and wine God into us conveys, how the bread his flesh imparts, how the wine transmits his blood, fills his faithful people's hearts with all the life of God. Now let me translate that a bit from 1700's English, from the English of 1745. Who shall say how bread and wine God into us conveys? Who shall say how bread and wine conveys God into us? Who can possibly say how the elements of bread and wine convey God's presence into us? How the bread his flesh imparts. How the bread imparts his flesh to us. How the wine transmits his blood. That's pretty straightforward. Fills his faithful people's hearts with all the life of God. Now look at verse 2. Let the wisest mortal show how we the grace receive. Feeble elements bestow a power not theirs to give. Who explains the wondrous way how through these the virtue came? These the virtue did convey, yet still remained the same. The bread and the wine remain bread and wine, and yet they convey to us the virtue of God's grace. They convey to us the virtue of the real presence of Jesus, His body and His blood. How can spirits heavenward rise by earthly matter fed? Drink here with divine supplies and eat immortal bread. Ask the Father's wisdom how Christ who did the means ordain angels round our altars bow to search it out in vain. I mean, this is earthly bread and wine and yet it is divine food in a mystery that we will, in this life, never fully get our brains around. Our brothers and sisters in Rome think they have. We disagree with them on that point, but we agree that these are powerful means of grace that convey to us the real presence of Jesus. The Bible even tells if you take it lightly... Yeah, Paul was very clear. If you eat and drink not discerning the body and blood of the Lord, you eat and drink damnation to yourself. So that discernment's critical. Let's look at the last verse. Sure and real is the grace. The manner be unknown. Only meet us in thy ways and perfect us in one. Let us taste the heavenly powers. Lord, we ask for nothing more. Thine to bless, tis only ours, to wonder and adore. Now, the Wesleys, John and Charles, Samuel, his father, and his mother, Susanna, did much of their theology in hymns. Much of their theology, their ground rock bed theology, was communicated in hymns and in prayer. And this hymn here helps us to see how Charles and John understood the real presence of Jesus and how he, they understood the elements of Holy Communion. Now before I say anything more quite about that, I want to look at, just turn with me real quick to the hymn that we sang this morning, number 6, 
16. And go to verse 3. Come and partake the gospel feast. Be saved from sin in Jesus' rest. O taste the goodness of our God and eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, I was watching <laughs> and I saw some eyeballs pop on that one. Uh, one particular saint in our congregation looked up at that part and looked around. She understood what she was singing. And if you read that, that is striking, friends. Verse 3 of M616. Yes! Paul made it very clear when he recounted Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood. And here we see it articulated in this Charles Wesley hymn, from 1747, just a couple of years after the previous one we looked at, where it says, And eat his flesh and drink his blood. It says it straight out. Not, and eat the symbol of his flesh and drink the symbol of his blood. He wanted to make a point. A, four makes a point too. Huh? Oh yeah, that, we're getting ready to look at that. See him set forth before your eyes. Behold the bleeding sacrifice. The sacrifice which he made on the cross for our sins, which we reconnect ourselves to in holy communion, in the bread and in the cup, the flesh that is broken, the wine which is his blood outpoured. All right? See him set forth before your eyes. Behold the bleeding sacrifice. His offered love. Make haste to embrace and freely now be saved by grace. The most perfect and complete communication of God's grace is seen on the cross when he dies for the sins of the world. And we are reconnected to that event in Holy Communion. In the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, a, a, a doctrine rose up of of re-sacrifice, where the, it was believed primarily by uneducated folk that what the priest was doing in Holy Communion was re-sacrificing Jesus so that Jesus was being crucified on the cross again with every Eucharist. If you read what the fathers of the, of the 4th, 5th, and 6th century said, however, it was very clear that that was not their understanding at all. It was perverted over time. Their understanding was we are reconnected to that one sacrifice. Do this in remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Be remembered, brought back into membership with that event on the cross. Be reconnected to, be recollected to, anamnesis, that event on the cross when Jesus died for our sins. It becomes a conduit through which we are reconnected, plugged in to the cross, and the effects of the cross, to use some modern cyber language, is downloaded to us. Huh? Plug and play. Plug and play. Plug and be redeemed. And what we have on the cross, and what we have in communion, and, and, and I just love, if you go back to that one we just looked at a minute ago, I'll just read it, you just listen. listen. Listen to these. Ask, uh, who explains, uh, no, first verse, how the bread his flesh imparts, how the wine 
transmits his blood. Now we believe that the bread and the wine remain bread and wine. But they become conduits. They become vehicles. They become instruments for conveying, imparting, transmitting the real presence of Jesus to us. I think it's a combination of, of the elements in your faith. Oh yes. The elements do this not by virtue of their own. They're simple bread and wine. But when we come and eat and drink in faith, faith makes the connection. Faith makes it actual in and through and for us. The grace is there, the grace is offered, and God's grace is sure and certain. Our response of faith is always contingent. And when we come without faith, with not discerning the body and blood of the Lord, we run the great risk of eating temporary damnation, temporary punishment, crema is the Greek word, which is temporary judgment, not katakrima, which is ultimate judgment. We run the risk of, of, of being judged for what we're doing. And some people, Paul said, were sick and ill and some close to death because they weren't discerning the presence of the Lord and disrespecting the Lord's house by getting drunk and, and, and pigging out at Holy Communion. Because in the early church, they brought great big potluck suppers, but they didn't share the potluck with others. They ate what they brought. So some person would have, you know, the 20-person 20, the 20 meal from, from Kentucky Fried Chicken, and the other person would have the ham and cheese sandwich. Nothing, you know, or nothing at all. And then when it came time, and then they would come, and they would also have their big bottles of wine. By the time they got the Holy Communion in the, at the end of the service, after the meal, some people are sitting back there, oh, I'm too full to eat. And the others sitting across on the other pew haven't had a bite and had to sit there and watch these people eat. And on top of that, those who are overfilled are also overfilled with wine. They're drunk. So they've been having a party and these other people have had nothing. They are disrespecting and not discerning the presence of the Lord in the service itself, in their neighbor who has nothing, in the elements. And because of their disrespect, because of their failure to discern, they were literally getting sick and getting close to death. God was judging them for what they were doing. And that was why he said, examine yourselves and make sure that what you are doing, you are doing in a worthy manner. You are unworthy. That's why you need to come. But your manner of partaking can be worthy by discerning the presence of the Lord. Now let's finish the liturgy. So turn back to the front to Word and Table 1 in your hymnals on page 10. The last section, after the mystery, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We have the last section. This is known as the Invocation, or the the epiclesis. I want to write it in English too. The epiclesis the calling forth 
of the Holy Spirit. The portion in here that is called the invocation or the epiclesis of the Holy Spirit is the prayer of consecration. Now, there have been debates throughout the history of the church as to what makes communion communion. What makes it the body and blood of the Lord? Is it the people gathered? Is it the prayers that are sung? Is it the rest of the prayer? Is it the words of institution? Is it a prayer calling forth the Holy Spirit? The answer that has been accepted by most is that it's the whole thing. All of the above. Holy Spirit empowers it, enables it, makes it efficacious. But it's the entirety of the event that makes it truly Holy Communion. So let's look at it. Look what the prayer says. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by His blood. When I was um, a novice in monastery in Boston, um, Father Brian, who was one of the monks at the time, and I went out to eat on a regular basis, and we were talking, and he was asking questions about the Methodist approach to this, that, or the other subject. He had been trained in the uh, Anglican Church of Canada and his connection and understanding of Methodists was pretty slim. He knew that they were, we were followers of John and Charles Wesley and, as he put it, evangelical Anglicans. And he's right. <laughs> and, and, but he wanted to know what was our differences and he had been surprised because uh, I had loaned the community a copy of my hymnal of our hymnal, and it was being used for one of the services. And, it, I mean, it was, frankly, I was quite honored that they'd used it, and they loved it. They thought it was a beautiful communion prayer for Holy Communion at the monastery in, in the Episcopal Church. And Father Brian was amazed by the prayer of consecration. And we were talking about practices and how we went about doing communion. And I, he asked me, well, how are you trained to do it in seminary? Because I took worship and Eucharistic practice in my first year, so I'd already had it. And I told him, I said, well, you know, I, we went through the arm hand motions, and he said, that's very similar to what we do. And when we got to this part of the prayer, I make the sign of the cross over the elements, and at the, we had just had dinner, and we still had a little bit of wine left over from dinner, and there was a piece of pie that I had yet to eat, and it was sitting right there. And so I made the sign of the elements over... And then I put my hands out, and I say, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here. And he reached out and touched my hands and said, wait a minute, you're getting ready to consecrate that piece of apple pie. <laughs> and then we'd have to eat it. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. I mean, yes, it's apple pie, but there's bread in there, and then there's wine sitting in that cup. And he was serious. He wanted to see the, what I did, and I just... You know, off it's of a magical spell. He was treating it almost as if it was magic. That just and by the sheer act and the words. Outside the context of the service, the gathering of the people together. Now, frankly, there were two of us. 
So they believe that the priest has the power on earth to make anything holy or to, you know... Yeah, it's almost a it's almost a magical concept, like you said. The words and the action would have made it so. Now, frankly, well, there's yeah, no, it's not, and and it should not be done lightly. That is appropriate, but I mean, it's like the story of the Catholic brothers in New York. One of their priests, this is a true story, got drunk, and he was staggering outside the monastery from from where his his room was to go to chapel and as he was staggering down the street he saw a wonder bread truck go by and he just he made the sign of the cross and prayed the prayer of, of institution and consecration over the bread in the prayer in the truck and the monks were all in a tizzy because now they had all of this Jesus in this truck going down the road <laughs> the the respect is right. But the making it into magic is not. This is not magic. And would that have been communion in front of us, the wine and the what was left over in the glass and the bread a crust of the pie? I don't know. To Father Brian it would have been. And that in itself makes it so, doesn't it? His faith, yeah. His faith in what that meant. And I think it was one of the few times that it really hit me. Here I was. I was an ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church at that time. I wasn't an elder yet. And I was on sabbatical leave. And I was almost ready to leave the United Methodist Church and become an Episcopalian. And they so respected me. Father Brian believed, even though I was not yet technically a priest in their conception, he believed that had I prayed that prayer that would have been so. And that was one of the things that struck me. And it played a role in eventually me coming back to the United Methodist Church and leaving the monastery and entering the pastorate. But it was an amazing personal experience. This prayer and this part of the prayer, the epiclesis, the calling forth of the Holy Spirit, is what is sort of gives the prayer gas, <laughs> if you will. Gives it energy, gives it gives it efficacious power. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us, gather here and on these gifts of bread and wine, make them be for us the body and blood of Christ. And it's not just that. Notice the next sentence, next phrase, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by His blood. This morning I talked about that. I said what's most important in Holy Communion is that phrase right there. Us being the body and blood of Christ. Jesus being in us and we reflecting and serving the world being the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears and the mouth of Jesus to a world that does not see Jesus. The Roman Catholics believe that the bread and the wine are transubstantiated into the body and blood of Jesus. I have said this and I will say it again even though I know that there are probably United Methodists who will disagree with me on this. In the United Methodist Church, in the Anglican Church, in many other denominations, we reject that, but we do accept that the body of the Christ, the Christians, those who receive communion, are transubstantiated into the body and blood of Jesus. You still look and smell and taste like yourself, but you are Jesus. Your substance is now Jesus. 
And that is what communion is about. And I said, if this is just an empty liturgy, you ought to not do it. You're not discerning the presence of the Lord. But if this is truly a means of grace by which Jesus is working to transform you and change you into his person, for others to hear and receive and know the presence, his presence in this world, then you ought to come. It makes it as important as the word being proclaimed. It makes it as important as praying. It makes it as important as singing hymns. All the means of grace have critical importance, and communion is no less among them. That's why we call it word and table service. It's the word and the table held together. Look at the rest of the prayer. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. Until Christ comes in final victory, and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Holy Communion is a foretaste, and indeed a participation in, the heavenly banquet mentioned here that we will all partake of at the end of time. We're partaking of it now in Holy Communion. That's part of the mystery. And then the closing of the prayer, the closing of the entire prayer, through your Son Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in your Holy Church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Now, that last little part there is critical. Not that it be prayed so much as what it says be understood. This communion takes place through your Son, Jesus Christ, with your Holy Spirit, in your Holy Church. Not necessarily the building. It can be in home. It can be in the chapel. It can be out on the streets. It can be in a hospital room. It doesn't matter. Church is people. A community of believers. And if you've got two, you've got enough. This is the great thanksgiving. Now, it doesn't have to read exactly like this. There are dozens of versions in the United Methodist Church alone. The Book of Worship has 18 different versions of the great thanksgiving, where the words are different based on the season of the year. And I have a worship resource that's uh, six volumes long, for all the seasons of the year, for all three years of the lectionary cycle, which gives great thanksgivings for every single Sunday based upon the lectionary readings. Where the details that are talked about in the thanksgiving, the details that are talked about in the first part of the anamnesis, are tailored to the lectionary reading for that Sunday, and hence to what you may have preached on. You can do that. You can write your own great thanksgiving so long as it makes up these, multiple, these three parts. The first part is the thanksgiving, God the Father. The second part is the remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. And the third part is the epiclesis, the calling forth of the Holy Spirit, the invocation on the consecration of the element. It's a Trinitarian theology. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This prayer is known in the history of the church as the prayer of St. John Chrysostom. Now, you, I've mentioned him before, both in our Bible studies and in worship. Chrysostom was bishop of Constantinople. 
He died at the very beginning of the 400s, the beginning of the 5th century A.D. He had been a priest of the church in Antioch. He was born in Antioch, a priest of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and bishop of the Church of Constantinople in the latter, last years of the 300s and into the 400s A.D. John, this fellow, had a golden tongue. He was a fantastic preacher. And he has been thought of and spoken of by the Eastern Orthodox Church as the greatest preacher in the history of the church. And they say that to this day. His sermons have survived 15, 1600 years to today. He preached on the lectionary, just like I usually do. And the lectionary, while it's changed, is sometimes very similar. And you can go and look up what he preached on a specific Sunday of the year. And you can go to an index that lists all the passages of Scripture that he preached on during his years as Bishop of Constantinople. They were taken down longhand, word for word, and have been communicated to us. And his, the theological content is very thick indeed. And you, and you think about it, these people would go to these worship services and stand for hours and listen to a sermon that lasted an hour and a half long. And no one complained. <laughs> and these sermons were deep theological treatises on a discrete passage of Scripture. And the name Chrysostom means golden tongue. And that's what he's called now. Um, one, one theologian who did not like him, a current day theologian who does not like him because he's, his theology he blames for essentially what we know of today as evangelical theology, says that he's St. John the windbag. Uh, that's not kind. John Chrysostom was a fantastic preacher. He was the Bishop of Constantinople, and he formalized this structure for the Great Thanksgiving. I have a copy of, the, of, of how it originally read. And it's amazing to look at how it is lined out and how little, in truth, it has changed. It's been simplified. The prayer of St. John Chrysostom has been simplified significantly. But the three pieces, the Father, thanksgiving to the Father, remembrance of the Son with the words of institution, and the epiclesis, the, the calling forth of the Holy Spirit, the invocation, are the three segments that John Chrysostom said are critical in any worship service. Now, I used to wonder, Greg, how people could like stay all, you know, stand all day and stuff. But then, as I got into intercessory prayer, I found I could pray all night uh -huh. and go to work and do that night after night and never be tired. And God sustains you. And that's what you're talking about with the people in the sanctuary listening and participating in worship. God sustains them because they are truly invested and involved in this. And they truly believe it. Chrysostom set this pattern in the late 300s. And we still follow it today. There's another, there's an alternative pattern that's also talked about in here called the Prayer of St. James, which predates Chrysostom's version. And it has pretty much the same structure. Instead of, uh, its order is a little different. And it's no longer considered the majority approach to communion. 
A few people in the Eastern Church still use it. For the most part, most Christians, and I don't care what denomination you're talking about, they either use this form or a version of it that's free form. If you listen to the prayer, you know, go to a Baptist church and go on a communion Sunday and listen to what is prayed. And the priest, the minister, the preacher gets up and prays a prayer. He's going to thank God. He's going to remember Jesus. He's going to say the words of institution and ask, the and ask God to bless the congregation as they receive. That's a basic pattern that's instilled into us. And Chrysostom was the one who sort of published it. He didn't invent it. We have copies of what essentially is the great thanksgiving of Chrysostom going back another 150 years. Some of our earliest copies of communion liturgies follow this basic pattern. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right? And we still do it today. Now, there have been, been lots of changes and lots of shifting around. And for a while there, the Methodists did what was called Word and Table 4 more than anything else. It's Word and Table 4 in our hymnals today. The language is, is, is very difficult. We heard, I mean, remember, I, I, I hinted at it this morning when I said, instead of uh, saying, it is right to give our thanks and praise. In, in Word and Table 4, it is meet and right so to do. And that's something that is just so strange. It sounds weird. To, take a look at Word and Table 4 in your hymnal. Just, it doesn't hurt to do it. we still got a few minutes. Mm -hmm. This is a very interesting prayer. You see the great thanksgiving beginning at the bottom of 27... And with thy spirit we lift them unto the, up unto the Lord. It is meet and right so to do. You've got the segments of it here. The language is slightly different. You have what's known as the prayer of humble excess that's in it, which I love. But you see, the structure is similar, and yet, and yet there are differences. Take a look. At, turn to page 30, the prayer of humble excess. Listen to this. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord, whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to partake of this sacrament of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that we may walk in newness of life, may grow into his likeness, and may evermore dwell in him and he in us. I have had communion under that before. Oh, yeah. I think that was real common in St. Mark when mm -hmm. I was younger. When you were younger, prior to the publication of the 1978 revision, of the liturgy, which gave us Word and Table 1. That was the only prayer we had, which was, is what we call today Word and Table 4. John Wesley gave us this from the Church of England. If you go and get a 1928 prayer book of the Church of England or the Episcopal Church of the United States, this, with a few minor differences, is the communion prayer they used. It's what we have in Word and Table 4. 
And if you follow it through, you get the portions of the service. Slightly different structure. You get the same portions of the service. You give thanksgiving to the Father. You remember what Jesus did with the words of institution. And you consecrate the elements. This is nothing new. It's very, 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 very old. And if you go to almost... If you go to any Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Disciples of Christ, Roman Catholic, you're going to see this structure. I've had people say to me, Oh, we went to a Mass at such and such Catholic Church, and we knew what was going on in the service because the order was very similar. Or the prayers, the Mass servants itself, where, where they got to the part where they did the responses, we could do the responses, we knew them. And our friends, Roman Catholic friends, were surprised that we knew them. Well, why should you be surprised? The same revision that we went through in the late 70s and early 80s, the Roman Catholic Church went through in, coming, in taking the liturgy and putting it into English. And we followed the same basic structure of simplifying the prayer of St. John Chrysostom. I had a Catholic friend who came here when uh, the school that Jane used to go to uh-huh. came here to sign. Yes. And she had the same comment the other way from the other side is that, wow, y'all have affirmations and, and uh, the liturgy just like we have. <laughs> <laughs> sure yeah, you sure do. So it's, there is across many denominations a commonality of this experience. One in the spirit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And as I said this morning, when we get the bread, the one loaf, undoes the damage that our rank denominationalism has generated. We, in our divisions by denominations, split the body of Christ into pieces. The one loaf gives us, in that visual symbol, that very powerful visual proclamation, that we are one. And it's one of the things, as I said, I love about Emmaus, is that in Emmaus you have people of many denominations who come together for word and sacrament and receive from the same loaf. And I, I love that because it professes and proclaims that which we know is true, but our denominational has, denominationalism has made into a lie that we are one in Christ. And that's what Holy Communion is about. I, I, use the, I mentioned the three terms. Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, and Eucharist. Lord's Supper, that term reminds us that this is Jesus' table. It's not ours. Holy Communion reminds us that this is how we are made one with Christ and one with each other. The vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with each other is repaired in Communion. And then Eucharist, Thanksgiving. This is not some morose event. This is a celebration of the presence of Jesus with us. We begin it with Thanksgiving to God for what He has done. So that is an amplification of what we looked at this morning in the morning service. You have been listening to a sermon by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of First United Methodist Church of Seagullville, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2005 
by Dr. Gregory S. Neal, all rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other sermons by Dr. Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 101 South Kaufman Street, Seagullville, Texas, 75159. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.